Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 210. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkino, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for this time and for this opportunity, for the uh, adventure of going through the Word of God and mining it for all the nuggets and just being blessed along the way. Um, it's such an important um responsibility for us to um, read and to study and to ponder and to meditate and to pray over um, so that we can put to practice the things that we are learning. Help us, Lord, to be uh, a people of faith. Help us to continue to, to see the bigger picture that Messiah has accomplished for us in that finished work on the cross, knowing that it's not we ourselves who bring this righteousness about, but it's his finished work that we rest upon by faith. So, um, even though we are studying in order to uh, uh, to to imitate the Messiah, in, in the end, we know that it's hit the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us that enables us to be pleasing to you. And so we surrender our lives to you and we yield ourselves and our minds and our hearts to this endeavor. But at the same time, we know that it's not self-effort. We know it's it's by faith that we are pleasing in your sight. And so thank you, Lord, for the resources that you have preserved for us by your Spirit. And thank you for the interest and the opportunities that students have um, provided along with me in these live internet studies. Uh, bless us tonight. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, this is the live internet study seb- segment one um, entitled, um, uh, what is the title? Off the top of my head, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. My name is Ari Lyman Hanavi. Let's jump back into the study. Looking at the screen right now, you can see we have worked our way past topics one, two, and three. So we're finally past the um, key scriptural passages. It took a little bit longer, and I hope that you appreciate the effort of laying a foundation for a study like this. This is essentially a, a study on the book of Revelation, but um, it's, it's I felt it's necessary to go back and look through um, certain Old Testament and New Testament passages um, to give us the... Um, uh, the background information necessary to appreciate what we're going to be encountering when we get to the book of Revelation. Continuing along that lines, but not moving as slowly, per se, as we did through the um, scriptural passages, we're ready now for, for topic four tonight, Book of Daniel, Prophecies Near and Far. And if I time it right tonight for this first hour-long segment, we will work our way through Daniel's chapter, Daniel chapters two and seven tonight. Um, it'll be, it'll feel like verse by verse, even though we're not going to, um, do every verse, it'll, uh, some of it will be overview. So I'm just telling you in advance, uh, if I can hit it in one session, the one hour session, that's fine. I'm not trying to rush anything, but it just might work out that way. Otherwise, um, two and seven, and then eventually we'll, um, turn to chapter nine and some of the other chapters, 10, 11, 12, as they're brought into chapter nine, but those will be treated as a unit. So two and seven are one unit of Daniel, and then nine, 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel are in my uh, study are treated kind of as one unit, and that'll certainly take a little bit longer. And again, this is not a study on the book of Daniel, but we are going to need to anchor some of the um, resources that we're gonna uh, uh, encounter in the book of Revelation. We're gonna need to anchor them in the book of Daniel because that's what John himself does. All right, so that's where the schedule looks. Again, this subject, this schedule is open to change, but uh, so far it's pretty up to date. Let's look um, briefly, before I jump into Daniel, the hermeneutic principle that we studied a few weeks back, I mean, almost a month ago, where we talked about the different ways to interpret Revelation. You remember those four views? I'll flash a little graphic on the screen that shows the different views. Um, But let's 
I have to revisit a little bit of that because it also pertains to the book of Daniel. And so I want you to know the approach that I'm taking as I'm studying this topic of eschatology and where my um, preferences are driving me, what type of study I'm aiming to accomplish. You may have personal differences with my own um, um, interpretive method of study. That's fine. Um, as long as we can both uh, kind of uh, agree on some of the majors and the major points, that's what I hope to accomplish. Um, I don't have all the answers and I don't know all the details. That's the whole point. Eschatology is a tricky subject because a lot of it is still future or a lot of it is still unknown. We'll put it that way. Unless you're a full-blown preterist, then you just believe you figured everything out because everything's history. Uh, maybe that's, that's a, a better perspective for you. But just real quick, I'm only going to take like five minutes on this. I've got a web resource pulled up that brings in the four kind of main uh, eschatological end-time perspectives when we're dealing with end-time prophecy, like the book of Revelation or something like that. Now, a lot of the book of Daniel is history, but that doesn't stop us from using this um, uh, type of viewpoint to realize that um, uh, it's helpful when it comes to looking at topics like the book of Daniel. So there are four views. There's the historicist view. There's the idealist view, number two. There's the preterist view. And then there's the futurist view. So let me just read some of this information for you real quick. Um, I don't have to read all of it, but and this is in no particular order. But the historicist view, the first, this approach to Revelation, and again, fill in the word Revelation there, which is simply end-time prophecy. So this applies to Daniel also. This approach to end-time prophecy holds that the book supplies a prophetic panorama of church history from the first century to the second coming of Christ. So again, if you're of that perspective when you're viewing um, end-time prophecy, you're not really going to be looking at so much um, everything to be smashed into an end-time, end-days, end-of-days scenario. You're going to look at all of church history, and you're going to see everything kind of played out for the last 2,000 years, per se, of church history. That's your perspective. And again, I'm not saying which ones are right or wrong. I think each one has its pros and cons. Each one has its application. It's the whole whole um, application of idiom of um, right tool for right job. So the idealist view uh, is defined as the view that holds that the book of Revelation or other books like it, such as apocalyptic genre like um, Daniel, um, is primarily symbolic description a, a symbolic description of the ongoing battle between God and the devil between good and evil. So again, the idealist view is a view that doesn't really try to say prophecy is foretelling some future event per se, so much as it's instead giving us a kind of a lesson that's timeless that we can carry it on uh, and uh, utilize at any given age that we're in. So it doesn't matter where what age we live in as believers or uh, people of God, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, you know, depending on which background you come from, the idealist view simply says, what are the lessons we can glean from this particular uh, book? It doesn't have to all be literal. It doesn't have to all be future. It doesn't have to be uh, pertaining to something that's really going to happen. Rather, it's almost anecdotal. It's almost like um, it's almost like a, a fairy tale. Uh, and that's why there are a lot of magical creatures that are described like dragons and beasts and things like that. It's almost as if the idealist is saying God didn't really want us to believe any of this is really going to happen per se, but rather it's it's trying to portray this sim, sim, symbolic struggle that's cosmic, you know, light versus dark, the, 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 the good versus bad. So that's one perspective again. Moving along, number three, the preterist view. Um, remember the word preterist 
is is related to this word. Let me see if my uh, definition will pop up. There we go. Um, okay, I don't really need that. Preterist is the idea that everything happened in the past. And so the Preterist view, this approach holds that the prophecies of Revelation, and again, this includes the book of Daniel, were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Titus and his Roman army overran Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple. And again, this kind of um, set the stage for um, the bringing all the prophecies to a conclusion. And so that everything else that happens afterwards and is essentially... Um, living in the reality of of god has already uh, made good on his promises and now we need to just live our lives according to something that has already come and gone now again notice even at this website level it simply calls it the preterist view but in reality if we were to dig a little deeper we will find that there's two um kind of uh types of preterism there's a full preterism which takes more of the prophecies, if not all of the prophecies, maybe even hyper-preterism, we could call it that, takes all of the prophecies of the book of Revelation, which is widely viewed by every Christian as the final book in the Bible, so that would mean that's the end of the story, takes all of those um, prophecies and says, this has already happened, and we've been living 1,900, 2,000 years since the fulfillment of all those details so there's nothing there's no literal antichrist that's going to hit the scene anymore there's no literal day of the lord where all these judgments are going to be poured out there's no literal um uh, great tribulation or destruction of jerusalem anymore all of that took place and so um uh revelation was written in, in this model the book, the book of revelation wasn't written in the 90s like most conservative bible teachers teach the book of revelation was instead it uh came at a very early date like this like in the 60s it has to be before 70 and that it really is the um the defining factor of the the full preterist view if the book of revelation is a later book like the 90s then it's a fatal flaw in the logic of preterism full preterism you understand what i'm saying there right because this means that john wrote after the destruction of the temple which means his prophecy couldn't have been fulfilled in 70 AD. So it's just like basic common sense there. But there's another version of preterism known as partial preterism, which takes part of the prophecies uh, in books like Daniel and Revelation to be fulfilled in 70 AD, and then it pushes the other ones into the future at a, at a distant date. So um, we'll talk about uh, which one of those views maybe is a little bit more beneficial for our study. And then lastly on this list is the futurist view, and it's defined as the futurist approach to interpreting the book of Revelation holds that most of the events described in the book will take place in the end times just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so um, um, this view, it goes on to say, honors the book's claims to be prophecy. It also recognizes that just as the Old Testament prophecies of the first coming of Christ were fulfilled literally more than 100 of them, so the prophecies of the second coming and the, and the events that will lead up to it will be fulfilled literally. So um, in case you haven't guessed, I am of the futurist perspective primarily. When I'm reading through Daniel, when I'm reading through uh, Revelation, I'm primarily reading stuff that I believe is going to take place in the future. But I'm drawing from some of the other perspectives. Like, I agree with preterists that partial fulfillment of prophecies that we find as early as the book of Daniel that we're going to see took place in the first century or even earlier than the first century, even prior, a few centuries earlier. For instance, there are there are numerous details in the book of Daniel that we'll find out in time that deal with 
um, the, the history of Medes and the Persians um, overtaking Babylon, Greece overtaking Medo-Persia, and um, Alexander the Great's conquests, his four generals picking up uh, the, his uh, kingdom after he died, uh, and Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, Ant Antiochus IV, uh, stepping onto the scene and doing uh, bad things to God's people, etc., etc. All of that is history now past, uh, meaning uh, up to the, you know, the times of the Maccabees, a few centuries prior to Christ. And yet, when we read through the book of Daniel, We've, I'm sorry, when we read to the book of um, Revelation, we find that there are details that could match what happened in 70 AD, even though the book was written later. In other words, uh, perhaps um, there was some backward-looking language and forward-looking event at the same time. And owing to the fact that prophecy has this, and I'll put this little graphic on the screen as you remember, near and far telescoping effects, where you will have a prophecy that um, um, is written for the near-term uh, fulfillment of the prophets that's writing it near to him, and so it's kind of right around the corner event. It's history to us now, but it was near to him. But yet at the same time, there's a far aspect that is that based on the details of language, if we take it um, literally, cannot have happened yet. So to the to the um, to the idea that there are near slash far or now slash not yet aspects of prophecy. Some parts of preterism seem to be true, at least the partial preterist perspective. I really don't find a lot of association or um, uh, usefulness with the full hyper-preterist perspective that everything has been fulfilled. I'm, I'm going to have to reject that. Uh, and I think most prophecy buffs also um, probably lean in that direction, although preterism as a system is gaining popularity once again here in, in, in our modern age. But at the same time, I also, again, recognize that parts of prophecy are designed to uh, help us remember that this is one big giant history uh, book marching forward in God's perspective. Um, he wants us to understand that prophecy really is a description of history, past, present, and future. History is what we just what we described as man's um, dealings on planet Earth. Um, you know, you're either living in you're always living in the present, but you're reminiscing about things that took place in the past and drawing lessons from them and growing. But you also have a view towards the future of what's what's around the corner, even though it's unknown to us. But from God's perspective, he sees all of history, past, present, and future, all at the same time, because he lives outside of space and time. So when he gives us prophetic details in the books like Daniel and, and Revelation, it's to our benefit to understand that this is real human history, whether it be past, present, or future, but it's still real meaning it's not make-believe, it's not science fiction, it's not fairy tale. It's real human history that he's trying to get us to um, understand and identify with. So um, kind of kind of mash up the historicist view and the idealist view in that sense. But in the end, if you don't realize that prophecy is, is just a foretelling of, of an event that should happen at least once, if not maybe twice, but at least once, then I think you're losing sight of the way prophecy is designed to work. So Having said that, let me kind of give you an overview of where we're going to be looking at in these um, chapters. Again, Daniel chapters 2, 7, and then 9 through 12, as you can see on this graphic on my screen. There's this um, giant statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees in Daniel chapter 2 that we're going to start reading about tonight. And um, that's the, the, the statue that you see on your screen right now. We'll come back to this uh, image over and over again, but just kind of telling you, whetting your appetite and letting you know kind of in advance that this particular statue 
is God's way of telling this king as well as Daniel certain events that are going to happen in the future that pertain not just to Daniel's people, but also pertain to the Gentile nations that are involved in God's um, moving of events. And this, the purpose, of course, is to let everyone know that God is the one who's in control of history. God's not just the one who's in control of his Bible and prophecy, and he hopes that history will somehow line up. That's not the way God wrote his word. Rather, God is telling us in advance of historical events that are sure to happen, even if all the details aren't given to us. In other words, even if there's a lot of symbolism and stuff, stuff like that. But we're going to get to that. So that's what we're looking at. Um, this uh, statue that we're looking at is also going to be... Um, a lot of the details are going to be filled in by the, the reading that we're going to be looking at. Um, and so you can see a, another uh, uh, resource on my screen right now that's going to uh, kind of, I'll, I'll return to this, but I'm showing it to you in advance in case you get lost. I'm kind of prepping it for you kind of in outline form, overview form, um, that we're going to be looking at a, a, a large statue that has five, really six kingdoms that are portrayed, five um, earthly kingdoms and then one heavenly kingdom that are portrayed uh, in the statue. So um, just be aware of that. That's what we're going to be looking at. At this point in time, I'm also going to make a recommendation that I haven't done yet, but I'll go ahead and do it at this point in time. There's a book that has highly influenced my own prophetic studies, and it's known as The Sign, put together by a Christian man by the name of Robert Van Campen, who recently passed away within the last, I think, five to ten years. But his resources are so thorough that I can I can recommend this resource to others who are prophecy buffs, prophecy students. Um, I don't agree with everything that that Mr. Van Campen uh, uh, puts forth in his book. For instance, he takes the classic dispensational approach, which I have some issues with dispensationalism as it deals with Israel's history. But helpful to um, us as prophecy students is that he takes the literal um, futurist approach, which means he believes that prophecy is going to be fulfilled literally, therefore a lot of it is still future. In other words, he's not a preterist or a historicist or an idealist, and he's not an eclectic view either. But since he's a futurist and that um, that's the model that I work with and that I understand uh, by the Bible being written at, written through, uh, written from, um, then the book uh, speaks the language that I'm looking for. Plus, he spent, I mean, I can't remember how many thousands of hours pouring through every single Old Testament prophecy that seemed to be relevant on the topic. And so he's he's extremely thorough, very well written, um, but not overly technical. It's a very, um, it's a comprehensive book, but it's like 500 something pages. But at the same time, it's, um, it's not overly like um, seminarian. It's not like a it's not like an encyclopedia, not like a technical journal or something like that with all these heavy Greek and 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 uh, Hebrew terms and stuff. He's very um, down to earth in his approach. So it's a good book. Um, he he has some odd conclusions to some of the details. Like he thinks that maybe Hitler might be uh, a resurrected Hitler might be a candidate for the Antichrist. He, he believes that maybe the uh, Nazi uh, Germany was maybe the seventh beast empire of the Book of Revelation. Um, some of those views, again, uh, he believes that maybe Papal Rome might also be probably a, 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 an intense part when it comes to uh, Mystery Babylon. I think he believes that Papal Rome probably is Mystery Babylon or something like that. So uh, these are views that have been challenged uh, over time, but he's a pre-rather like me. 
Um, and that's what the book is uh, 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 kind of uh, anchored in, is the idea that um, God's going to save us from wrath, but he's going to cause us to go through tribulation. So uh, pick up the book if you can. I, I, I'm flashing the Amazon page on the screen for you in case you're interested. It's $40 uh, purchase brand new paperback in on Amazon. I don't get any kickbacks for this uh, advertisement, so don't, don't even worry about all that. I'm not going to put any links in the description of my video or anything like that. I'm just telling you what type of book. I've got it sitting on my bookshelf right now. And if I scroll down there's also books that people have uh, purchased that are similar and one of them in, is the pre-wrath rapture by uh, marvin rosenthal and i happen to happen to own that one as well uh, that's the kind of the book that started the whole pre-wrath discussion in christianity so just thought i'd let you know all right without further ado let's jump into daniel all righty so let me read copious parts of daniel chapter 2 first and then we'll go back and hit some of the highlights. And again, this is not a deep dive into Daniel. So for those of you who are looking for me to, to turn over every stone and uncover every Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic word, um, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Although it is known that the book of Daniel with its 12 chapters is broken up into the first chapter written in Hebrew. And then chapters 2 through um, uh, 7 or 8. Um, now I'm drawing a blank. Give me a second. Let me, let me cheat. Look at my resource. Um, yeah, here we go. And this is fine. I'll just flash this on the screen for you. Oops, didn't blow it up that quite that big. There we go. Um, the book of Daniel by way of structural analysis, and this might be helpful for some of you. Um, Daniel chapter one is written in Hebrew. Daniel chapters two through seven are written in Aramaic. And then Daniel chapter eight through 12 is written in Hebrew. So, and the, uh, the people who put together, um, outlines for the book of Daniel, such as the website that I'm looking at right now, preceptaustin.org, they say that Daniel 1 deals with Daniel's stand as an individual, as a teenager who was carted off to, to uh, Babylon by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar uh, in Daniel chapter 1. But then when we read chapter, chapters 2 through 7, which are written in Aramaic, this the main focal point is God's prophetic plan for the Gentile nations, which I think fits the theme of those that that set of chapters which we're going to be looking at tonight hopefully and then by the time we turn to daniel chapter 8 through 12 uh the theme of that section which is written in hebrew again is god's prophetic plan for israel so um that's a very helpful uh extremely zoomed out um uh say um uh outline type view of the book of daniel all right, without further ado, let's jump into Daniel chapter 2. So we're going to look at the king's dream first, starting in verse 31. I'm dropping down into the middle of the reading because a lot of the other stuff is just about the king having the dream and then getting upset because his own um, uh, magi couldn't uh, interpret the dream, his own soothsayers and, and, and uh, magicians. They couldn't interpret the dream. They, in fact, they couldn't even tell him the dream. He wasn't going to play, make it that easy for him. It's like, if you guys are powerful, then tell me what the dream is and then interpret it. And so they were going to kill everybody because they said, no, we can't do it. And Daniel was one of the people who was prominent already at that point in time for knowing uh, to have um, uh, interpretive or um, uh, uh, what we might call um, insight into these types of matters or uh, even um, a, a, an anointing on him. And so he was part of the gr group that would have been slaughtered by the king, but, but he he steps in and de and defends them and says no let's let's um don't kill everybody i'll pray to god and he'll give me the interpretation and god surely does so we're now into the interpretive part so i'm going to read from this point to the end of the chapter or at least through the end of the dream and then we'll go back and hit some of the details that are relevant 
for the book of Revelation. Remember, this is a book of Revelation study, but we're using Daniel to um, ground us foundationally in some of the concepts that we're going to be dealing with in in the book of Revelation. The king's dream, starting in verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary radiance, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. This is the NASB version of the Bible. Verse 32, the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Continuing, you continued watching until stone was broken off without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed to pieces all at the same time, and they were like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Now we have a heading in your Bible that says the interpretation, Babylon, the first kingdom, starting at verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Interesting in verse 35, I'm sorry, verse 36, Daniel says, we, who's the we, right? Is it he and the other magicians? Is it he and his four friends? Is it he, is he counting he and the Holy Spirit? So that's an interesting we there. Anyway, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the honor. Verse 38. And whenever and wherever the sons of mankind live, or the animals of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And then in your Bible, we have a heading that says Medo-Persia and Greece, starting in verse 39. And after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Medo-Persia and Greece, those are both captured in one verse. And then in your Bible, we have a heading that says Rome, starting in verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Just as iron smashes and crushes everything, so like iron that crushes, it will smash and crush all these things. Verse 41. And in that you saw that feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, will be a divided kingdom. Uh, It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have within it some of the toughness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Continue in verse 42. And just as the toes of of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, So some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be fragile. Verse 43, in that you saw uh, saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in their descendants, um, literally in the seed of men, or with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not combine with pottery. And then continuing, you have a heading in this Bible that says the divine kingdom, starting at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was broken off from the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. And that's where we'll stop our reading for chapter 2. Remember, this statue vision is God's way of telling the king, through Daniel's interpretation, what's going to happen, not just to his kingdom, but what's going to happen 
to some succeeding kingdoms down through the generations of other Gentile nations as they have an impact on Israel, but primarily as pertains to the Gentile nations that are parked in that part of the Middle East. Remember, we're dealing with the cradle of civilization area of the world, the Mesopotamia, a modern-day Iraq part of the world, um, primarily when we're talking about um, uh, Book of Daniel, Bab- Babylon Kingdom. But as we're beginning, as we're going to notice, when we look at these uh, four earthly kingdoms and uh, five earthly kingdoms and one heavenly kingdom, or further four earthly kingdoms and one heavenly kingdom, depending on how you break it up. But as we look at these kingdoms, we're going to see that as we go down the list of one, two, three, four that they grow in size on the on the physical map. So Babylon occupies a space of maybe like modern day Iraq, but then as we move into Medo-Persia, we start moving moving into Iran and 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 um a more landmass area ter- covering the, you know, like Turkey and Syria and um and then when we get we're talking about um Greece, it gets even bigger, right? Alexander the Great covered a lot of area that started heading not just north and east, but expanded even to the west and farther to the east than even either either Med- uh, Greek, uh, Babylon or Medo-Persia did. And then finally, when we're talking about this fourth kingdom that many people say is Rome, but some people say is maybe the Ottoman Empire. Either way, we're dealing with even a larger area where we're kind of started talking about the northern parts of Africa and stuff like that. So um, from an overview perspective, let's now again... Um, look at the uh uh uh, where's that uh graphic there we go let's look at the statue this is the statue that daniel describes in nebuchadnezzar's dream if you could kind of turn your head sideways and look you see the head of gold then you see the um what we might call the the the, uh, body the chest and arms of silver and then we see the um belly and thighs of bronze there in the middle and then we have the um, legs of, um, I'm sorry, not of, of bronze. The uh, um, What metal was that? Give me a second. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, silver, gold. There we go. No, gold, silver. Is it bronze? It's not bronze. Let me go back up. So we got, I'm trying to go in, this, in the same order. We have gold. Let's see. King's dream. There we go. We have gold. There we go. Uh, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver. So gold, silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron. Okay, so yeah, gold, silver, bronze, iron. All right. So uh, gold head, and then uh, silver, uh, chest and arms, and then um, uh, uh, bronze, uh, belly and thighs, and then iron legs. And then... Um, it doesn't mention anything uh, distinctively of what uh, I mean. It talks about the feet of iron and clay that are mixed together, and then we got the stone at the far right of your screen. And um, significant for our studies is the way that the prophecy is interpreted, not just by the Book of Daniel. We're going to find out that the Book of Daniel actually tells us that the head of gold is Babylon, and later on in the Book of Daniel, we would find out that the um, the silver portion, the, the chest and the arms, is Medo, is the Medes and the Persians, and that the the uh, uh, bronze midsection there is um, uh, Persia. Those are all actually given to us by name in the Book of Daniel later on. It's the fourth empire, the 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 legs of iron and the feet and toes of iron and clay. Those empires aren't named specifically by Daniel, but 
according to this particular chart, which I believe has a lot of merit and a lot of uh, accuracy, the first empire is Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. Um, you can see a date given there. And then the um, second empire is the Medes and the Persians, the, the silver empire, the silver metal is the Medes and the Persians or Medo-Persian empire. The third metal, the, the um, bronze one, is the Greek empire. And then the fourth one, the iron, the iron legs, uh, I believe so far as of this date, right in 2023 of this study, I believe that Rome is the best candidate for this group. Although we're going to find when we start looking at Daniel's own in dream of this um, image in Daniel chapter seven, which I believe will hit tonight, we're going to see that there are details of the prophecy that lend support to this near, far, now, not yet aspect of is this Rome or is this the future uh, um, beast empire that the Antichrist is going to be um, heading up in the future? Or is Daniel talking about a kind of a, an amalgam, a, a kind of a mac, mashup of what we might call the Roman Empire as it declined and led to the eventual rise of the Ottoman Empire, right? The, the empire that brought Islam to the world. So there are some possibilities when we're looking at details that could interpret the legs part, the part that's made of iron, um, that could be Rome, and I think there's strongest, the strongest support is that Rome is the candidate, but there are hints that some of the details could possibly be leading into the Ottoman Empire, and maybe the the, the feet of clay and, and iron are possibly the Ottoman Empire, or they're a type and shadow of the Antichrist Empire. So that's where things are going to get a little more dicey in, in our uh, study. But for now, um, in conclusion, that by looking at the statue, here's what I'm going with um, as of 2023 of the times of this, this study that I'm doing. The head of gold is 100% definitely Babylon. And we're talking about Neo-Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. We're not talking about um, Nimrod's Babylon that, that existed way back in the 7th century BCE or something like that. You know, the Tower of Babel, um, Genesis chapter 10 through 12. Not that Babylon, OG Babylon. This head of gold is Neo-Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Okay, Book of Daniel, um, 5th century, 6th century, that type of stuff. BC. And then the next um, metal is definitely uh, uh, um, the Medes and the Persians. Again, the book of Daniel tells us so, so I'm confident in, in saying 100% that that is the um, metal, that's the empire that's represented. Um, these are world empires that existed on the scene. And when we say world, we're talking about the known world at the time. We're not talking about the entire globe. Uh, we're talking about the known world at the time of the writings of these particular uh, prophecies. Um, so that's definitely Med the Medes and the Persians that took over where Babylon uh, left off. And then moving down historically, the Greek Empire came onto the scene and lasted for so long. And then after that, uh, historically, successively, um, the Roman Empire picked up where Greek left off. And there's actually, as you probably know history, Rome didn't really wipe out all of Greek culture. They simply just changed a lot of the names of things, but they retained a lot of the Greek language and culture and philosophy um, in the Roman Empire, so much so that um, even though Latin ended up being spoken in Western Rome, Greek still ended up being spoken in Eastern Rome or Constantinople or modern-day Turkey, uh, that part of the world.
especially when we're talking about uh, Rome's division between east and west, western side of Rome, which is kind of where modern day um, Europe exists today, uh, western Europe, and then eastern Rome or um, uh, Constantinople, it's kind of the dividing line where um, Greece hits the map and working its way uh, east across Greece and Tur modern day Turkey and covering um, actually modern day Israel and uh, modern day Syria, modern day Lebanon, modern day um, uh, parts of um, of uh, Egypt and things like that. So that's what we're that's what we mean by when we say east and west Rome or east or western church, the two legs there. And then again, moving down into the statue, when we're talking about the feet of clay, for now I understand the feet of clay to represent the final, primarily the final beast empire that satan is going to uh, commandeer for the end of times so um it's a it's a there there in other words it represents a gap in time from the fourth uh metal on the list to the feet there's a space there and um, we'll find out in time why i believe this space must exist even though the preterist is probably going to say no there's no space here the feet actually continued on right after the destruction of the temple because Rome still existed um, for, uh, you know, well, well up into the uh, fourth and fifth century uh, AD after the destruction of the temple. Rome didn't go away anytime soon. Western Rome didn't go away. Um, in fact, Eastern Rome picked up and kept going well on farther even after that. So, um, but Western, even after Western Rome's decline. But the point being is the feat, in my understanding, is primarily a future... A Gentile-led kingdom that is going to exist at the end of days when the rock known as Messiah comes and strikes it at the feet and does away with all these other kingdoms. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Ariel. If that's the case, wouldn't all the other kingdoms have to be in existence? Ah, we'll talk about that in time. All right. But for now, let's turn to this other screenshot real quick and look at part of this list. we got Babylon, again, looking at the column on the far left. We've got the kingdom column. On the left, we've got Babylon as the head of gold. We've got Medo-Persia as a chest and arms of silver. If I'd have referred to this chart earlier, I wouldn't have embarrassed myself by not remembering which metal was what. We've got Greece as the belly and thighs of bronze. And then we've got Rome as the legs of iron. And then in this chart, we've got Rome divided and dispersed as the feet partly of iron and partly of clay as the ten toes. As the kind of the, 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 the um when we say the feet, the, the divided Rome dispersed. On the one hand... It represents Rome falling apart, right, in its final stages in the feet. But on the other hand, it's a type and shadow, a near-far prophecy of the future kingdom. So we could call it a revived Rome that comes on the scene later on in, in, in time. So in, in this way, I recognize, as a, as a futurist myself, I recognize the valuable contribution that preterism brings to the table in recognizing that part of what Daniel was prophesying about took place in 70 AD, and that's on the near term for Daniel. But on the far term, because I'm, it's still now future to me, and certainly farther than Daniel saw, it's still part of the future in that uh, that toes that the ten toes represent something that's uh, still future. So that's the way I'm interpreting it. And then we've got this final kingdom, one, two, three, four, five, six. Remember I said five earthly kingdoms and then a um, heavenly kingdom. The millennial kingdom, it's here on earth, but it's heavenly in the sense that it's it's led by Messiah himself. It's the stone cut without hands that strikes the image and fills the entire earth. 
And then um, we're going to look at the final column on the far right as we turn to Daniel chapter 7. So with the final 20 minutes left in our study, let's begin to take a bite out of chapter 7. We might get through the entire chapter 7. We might not. might spill over into next week. I'm not worried. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter uh, 7. Oops, sorry. Let me back up. There's another um, time chart, another image chart that I pulled in from the uh, my uh, calling the internet, and this this particular chart is very helpful as well. It shows how that if you think about it uh, from a very large overview perspective, if you take the Bible and divide it up into kind of dispensations, right? This is decidedly a, a somewhat dispensational perspective. But I don't disagree with everything that dispensationalism brings to the table. I think there's some helpful information. Just like with preterism, I try to glean what is helpful and reject that which is, uh, I believe, um, um, not as helpful. So we could see that from a Jewish perspective, we have a Jewish supremacy in the earth in the Old Testament kingdom of Israel leading up to a point right where God called Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land and established them as a people in their own land with their own kingdom, their own laws, uh, their own um, temple, etc., etc., until um, they played the harlot and Nebuchadnezzar came along, I'm sorry, until really Assyria came along um, and uh, uh, exiled the northern tribes, and then Babylon came along and exiled the southern tribes. But at that point in time, beginning with the captivity uh, with Assyria and Babylon, we enter into a parenthesis in Israel's history that's labeled by this chart, the times of the Gentiles, which again is a kind of a dispensational description, but I think it's actually helpful and actually accurate. So look at the bottom of your chart. You can see these little uh, markers known as the captivity. And then reading from left to right, we've got Babylon, which is the gold part of the statue, Medo-Persia, which is the silver part, Greece, which is the bronze part, and then Rome, which is the iron part, and then revived Rome, which is the iron mixed with clay down at the feet. And that's the um, end of the time, uh, times of the Gentiles, or Gentile supremacy. And then, as you can see on the chart, at the stone hitting the statue at the feet, we close the parenthesis, and we begin once again the Jewish supremacy in, uh, in the earth with the millennial kingdom. Now, again, probably one of the, the greatest strengths for me as a Jewish believer in the um, dispensational perspective, one of the, one of the ideas that's, pos that's um, proffered by them that I like the most is that they give Israel the physical kingdom. That's a, what we might call a, um, a pre-millennial pre when it comes to rapture, but um, pre, uh, uh, let's say pre-millennial. Yeah, pre-millennial when it comes to um, Christ returning to earth to set up the kingdom prior to the millennial, pre-millennium. And so dispensationalism, classic dispensationalism, holds to a pre-trib, pre-millennial. Pre-trib meaning they believe that um, uh, Christians will be raptured before the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation from their, their viewpoint, but that Christ will return to earth prior or pre prior to the millennium, meaning he'll set up his millennial kingdom and then rule from planet Earth, and this will be governed by the Jewish people. So at least dispensationalists give the millennial kingdom back to the Jewish people in um, comparison to, say, many religious Christian groups like Catholics and Lutherans who rob Israel of that, of that physical millennial kingdom by postulating an amillennial perspective. There's no physical thousand-year kingdom. But 
according to what my understanding, we're working our way towards a, a real literal kingdom on earth. All right, let's jump into Daniel chapter um, 7 begin to work our way through this what we're going to find let me tell you up right up front again i'm i'm fine with giving spoilers spoiler alert spoiler alert we'll flash a little graphic on screen spoiler alert daniel chapter 7 is essentially a retelling of daniel chapter 2's vision but seen through the lens of daniel's personal dream and through the lens of animals instead of metals and a statue but it's essentially the same slice of history and the same uh, prophetic vision of the end times. It gives a little more detail this time, so let's read it. So that's my spoiler alert. In case you're like, oh, Ariel, you ruined it. What was, what was, what, what were you thinking? Well, sorry. All right. My heading in the Bible for this NASB says vision of the four beasts. So we're going to be reading about four primary beasts. And then there's this fifth beast that rep was represented by the toes. This fifth beast that's, from Daniel's perspective, kind of, um, smashed up into the fourth beast there's there's a there's it's there's no break between the way the description moves from fourth beast to fifth but we definitely have this kingdom here that daniel talks about uh this heavenly kingdom the represented by the stone in daniel's statue uh Nebuchadnezzar's statue but in this case it's going to be a um uh we're going to actually see the ancient of days and the messiah figure the son of man let's read it let me read down through this time um I'm going to read through most of the, uh, the, in fact, I think it'll be the whole chapter. So um, I'm not going to tell you the verses, just follow along on the screen. Vision of the four beasts, verse one, that's the only verse you'll get. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw dream and visions. By the way, chronologically, uh, people say that this steps backwards in time. So um, I'm not going to get into all that right now. I'm Germane to our study is that this vision in Daniel chapter 7 in our book, so the chapters are laid out in a way that I'm just kind of working with now. I'm not going to tell you whether 7 chronologically actually came before 2 or not. That's that's not part of my study. The germane to my study, the, the walk away that I want you to gain from this is that the two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 2, both describe the same events, the same kingdoms, the same um, Gentile nations that arrive on on the scene and Israel has to deal with them. All right. Daniel saw a dream and visions uh, in his mind as they lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and told the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, but had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until the wings were plucked up, plucked, and it was lifted from up from the ground and set up on two feet like a man, a human. Mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said this to it. They, interesting again, arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on his back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions. Notice, let me interject, notice the chronological sequence uh, supplied by Daniel's after this, after this, after this, things like that. This lets us know that these are successive kingdoms. They should happen one after another primarily. Verse 7, after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrible and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the previous horns were plucked out before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like human eyes and a mouth uttering, uttering great boasts. Now, in my Bible, this um, heading chapter, starting with this verse, says the Ancient of Days reigns. And it's right in the middle of re- seeing the four beasts that we have this kind of interjection of this um, heavenly vision, heavenly part. Starting in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court convened, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now we have a chapter or a a heading, a, a, a topic heading that says the Son of Man presented, starting in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now we have a heading titled, The Vision Interpreted, starting in verse 15. As for me, Daniel... My spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began requesting of him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Starting in verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and take possession of the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up and before which three of the horns fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Let me interject interestingly in the very end of verse 20 when it talks about this horn which was larger in appearance than its associates. It's interesting that Daniel earlier called this horn the little horn, and yet now he calls it larger in its appearance than its associates. Kind of interesting, kind of um, almost um, contradiction there, but just thought I'd interject. All right, uh, continuing to read in verse 21. Uh, Daniel says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and crush it. As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will humble three kings. 
and he will speak against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will, he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the empires will serve and obey him. And then the final verse says, And at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face became pale, but I kept the matter to myself. All right. So we've got about five minutes left in this study. What we're going to see is, and this will definitely move into uh, next week as well, where we're going to start looking at chapter 7. What we're going to be finding out is that, um, let me see if I've got another graphic here. Yeah, another graphic shows uh, the four animals. What we're going to find out is that Daniel's dream slash vision of these four animals corresponds one-to-one with Dan- with um, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of the statue with the four metals. So if you look at the picture on the screen now, you've got reading from right to left, um, from uh, left to right. We've got Babylon as the lion with wings. Then we've got Greece. I'm sorry, uh, these aren't in order. I apologize. I said right to left, but really it's just um, uh, starting with Babylon and going counterclockwise. We've got Medo-Persia as the bear raised up on one side with ribs in its mouth. Then we've got um, uh, Rome, which is, this isn't the order that they're in, but Rome, which is this dreadful looking dinosaur-like beast on the screen there. And then we've got Greece, which is a leopard with four heads and, uh, and wings and things like that. And so the order that Daniel sees them, I'll put them back in order for you, are Babylon, the lion, first, then Medo-Persia, the bear, second, then Greece, the leopard, third, and then the fourth beast, Rome, with all of its horns on its head, the dinosaur-looking, um, dragon-like looking beast that you see on your screen now. So what we're going to find out in time, let me turn back to Daniel chapter 7 here. What we're going to find out in time is that what Daniel was shown is the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was shown, and that it's a slice of history that details predominantly Gentile kingdoms that are going to arrive on the scene, starting with Babylon, and working your way towards the coming of Messiah in the first century. So working our way up to that. It's obviously known by Bible readers that Rome was the dominant world empire at the time of Christ. And yet it's also obviously known that Babylon was the dominant world empire at the time of Daniel. So Daniel's dream is showing us these four great earthly kingdoms that are going to hit the scene in that order. What's important for a Revelation study, and I'm closing with these thoughts, is that when we finally get to the book of Revelation, John is going to begin detailing events that I believe are future that are going to show us a final beast empire that is predominantly controlled by Antichrist, the false messiah, uh, I'm sorry, the false prophet, and um, the beast systems, um, um, Mystery Babylon or Babylon the Great, and things like that. And the way it plugs back into Daniel is that this final beast empire that Satan utilizes by by satanically inspiring uh, the Antichrist and, and things like that, is itself going to be um, almost 
inspired, as it were, or compositely made up of previous what we might call beast empires. So the um, the bigger picture that we're going to see when we get to the book of Revelation is that John actually goes farther back in human history than Daniel did, and he brings in two more uh, beast kingdoms that existed prior to Daniel's prophecy and includes them in this long list of seven beast empires and then an eighth beast empire. So I'm losing you with some of these details, but uh, right now, because we're not, we, we've not cracked open the book of Revelation yet, but germane to where we're going, where, where our study is aimed at, is that by the time we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to need to remember that Daniel already prophesied and foretold of these earthly beast empires that even though from our perspective today the the what we might call the um uh the influence of those empires is no longer at a worldwide right worldwide level for instance in Daniel's day Babylon conquered the known world Medes and the Persians conquered the known world Greece conquered the known world under Alexander the Great and Rome conquered the known world in the time of Christ even though that was true back then, by the time we get to the book of Revelation and, Dan, and uh, John describes these beast empires that have been used by Satan down through the ages, culminating in this eighth final beast empire that's going to exist at the end of days, the new world order that Satan's going to be um, utilizing as his tool in the final days, this eighth beast empire has influences of the previous beast empires um, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then this mysterious seventh beast empire that could either be the Ottomans, or it could be um, the Russian Empire, or it could be even Nazi Germany as the seventh empire. But this eighth beast empire is a kind of a composite of all the empires that came before it, although minus the dominion that they had. So um, what I'm trying to say is that this final eighth empire doesn't need to have the same footprint as all the empires before it, but it definitely is in the same geographical part of the world. And it, in, in my understanding, actually does cover a lot of the same geographical footprint, although it doesn't have to be the exact same borders because people shift in time, right? Uh, the people of Babylon, you know, migrate to a different landmass and occupy a different part of the world, modern part of the world than, say, ancient or vice versa or something like that. So we don't need to get caught up in details where, well, wait a minute, ancient Babylon no longer contains the, the dominion that it did back in Daniel's day. The people groups in Iraq don't have the same world power influence. Well, that's not the point. The point is it's still the same geographical area, and the, the, the spirit that dominated that area from the per, uh, prophetic perspective is the same spirit that's in operation because the spirit that lives, uh, the, the, the evil spirits are in um, operation at the end of days, um, predominantly in this eighth beast imp empire, um, influencing it using um, um, some of the similar strategies uh, that Satan has used in the past to persecute God's people. So we're getting, we'll, we're going to get into that in time. But um, starting next week, we will um, look at Daniel seven specifically. We'll review just five minutes of review Daniel chapter two's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, but we'll begin to break down Daniel chapter seven and I'll take a little bit more time. I may, may even take two weeks uh, starting next week. We'll begin to um, peel back uh, the details of Daniel chapter seven. It certainly warrants because of all the details. It certainly warrants a, um, a verse by verse study, uh, but I'll see if I can do it in one or two weeks. Um, 
uh, for us, but not drag it out. But we're finally starting to get into um, more of eschatology and end time events. So I hope the study is becoming a little bit more exciting for you. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to TetzeTorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tor Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me um, I'm so 
absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity. And I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well, too. I mean, uh, God... Uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism for these last 30 minutes of our um, segment two of our study. As you can see on my screen right now, we've got biblicalunitarian.com's website pulled up. This is a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a non-Trinitarian website. And they purport that many of the verses that we encounter in our New Testament or in our Bible are not actually Trinitarian verses. They are instead Unitarian verses. And from their perspective, God is the only God. He's the one true God. He is the... Um, he is a... Uh, um, he is a... Uh, what's uh, what's the technical term for it? He's a... Um, um, He's he's a singularity. He's not a unity. Um, he's he's uh, numerically one. That's the term I was looking for earlier, according to Dr. Dale Tuggy. So he's numerically one. There's not three of him. And in the Unitarian model, there's God, who's the Father, and then the Son is Jesus, who's a human being, and the Spirit is either a another way of describing God, right? God the Father, the Holy Spirit. Since God is holy and God is a spirit, then the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God, another way of describing God, and or the Holy Spirit is the gift that God gives to humans in order to inspire them and to um, anoint them with his presence. But it's but the Holy Spirit is definitely not the thir- a third member of a trinity known as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So that's their non-Trinitarian perspective. And what we're doing is we, as Trinitarians, are taking these verses that we have come to read and love as Trinitarian-facing passages, and we're reclaiming them for Trinitarian theology. Because the Unitarian website, such as this resource, has, is trying to convince us that we've been wrong all along. So we're already in Genesis 18, 1 and 2. Last week, I took the entire show to essentially read Biblical Unitarian's answer uh, to this particular passage. I'll read the passage itself from their website, and then I'll simply turn right into my own study. Biblical Unitarian quotes Genesis 18, 1 and 2 this way, out of the NIV. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Verse 2, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And so if you go on to read the rest of the story, and we'll read parts of this tonight, if you go on to read the rest of the story, you'll notice that Abraham dialogues with these three men, and one of the men turns out to be God himself, right? Yahweh, tetragrammaton name for God, Y-H-V-H. And the two other men turn out to be angels that go on to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it, or to go on and warn Lot and rescue Lot and etc. To, to, to they just traveled to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But the point is that according to the Unitarian perspective, the man that showed up at Abraham's tent was God. And that's it. It's God the Father. And he he presented himself in theophany, right? God manifested himself in human form and presented himself to Abraham so that he could dialogue with Abraham without Abraham being destroyed. And in the Unitarian model, there was nothing um, nothing profound about the encounter. God is powerful enough to manifest himself as a human being. And that's all that happened. There's no need to insert any other person of the Trinity in there or such like that. Um, so from their perspective, when the Bible talks about no man can see God, it's talking about the quality that God possesses in his normal state of existence. Ontologically, it means that God is invisible in his normal state of existence, and therefore man cannot see God because God is invisible to the human eye. On the other hand, when the Bible talks about people seeing God, from their perspective, from the biblical Unitarian perspective, they believe what the Bible is describing is not seeing Jesus, but rather knowing God or being uh, aware of God's um, nature uh, in a more intimate way as expressed through his son, Yeshua. And so, um, the, again, this is in contradistinction to the Trinitarian explanation, which says that God cannot be seen, true, and because God is invisible and cannot be seen, for various other reasons as well, then every time a human being encountered a seen God or a manifestation of God or a theophany of God, it was in some way actually a theophany slash Christophany, i.e. a, um, a pre-incarnate Jesus, a pre-incarnate Yeshua. Uh, the Word made flesh before He became flesh he was simply manifesting himself to human beings so that instead of looking at God, they're looking at the second person of the Trinity, who is, in fact, very God, according to the Trinity model, but it's not God the Father, it's God the Son. So um, that's how we Trinitarians understand all the interactions throughout the Old Testament of people interacting with the manifestation of God or the theophany. It's actually a Christophany. It's a theophany slash Christophany. Theophany in the category of God, but Christophany in the person of Jesus in that sense. So this is where we Trinitarians and we biblical Unitarians sharply disagree. However, I want to make this point right up front so you don't get lost in my study. When the biblical Unitarians describe that the only way to truly know God, and therefore thus see God, the only way to truly know God is through Yeshua, I am absolutely 100% in agreement with that theology. One can only truly know God, i.e. see God, through the person of Messiah. Other than that, your knowledge or experience of God is superficial. It's head knowledge, it's experiential, it's anecdotal, it's it's circumstantial um you know uh, as we're going to find out in the book of daniel um people see god nebuchadnezzar saw in the when he threw the hebrew boys into the furnace he saw someone that looked like a son of the of the gods or a son of man um he saw some human humanoid type figure in there was he seeing god was he seeing the angel of the lord or was he seeing a pre-incarnate yeshua theologians uh, uh the trinitarians would say it's a pre-incarnate yeshua I'm not sure what the, what the uh, biblical Unitarians say about that one yet. We'll look at it. 
But let's turn now into our own Trinitarian understanding of this verse. I don't think if I if I do it justice, I don't think I have to spend two weeks going through this. I think I can hit this in one week if I don't dilly dally. So let's let's just follow along in my study. Let's first uh, uh, first turn the Genesis one eighteen real quick. And the only thing I want you to glean from reading through certain parts of this passage is that Abraham actually dialogues with a figure known as God or the Lord, and in the Hebrew, it's YHVH. So. On the left side of your screen, we've got the English from the NASB. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And on the right side of the screen, it says, This phrase or this word right there, as you can see that I've highlighted, is the Tetragrammaton name for the Lord YHVH, Yahweh, uh, Adonai, Hashem, uh, Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it. I'm not going to um, be too terribly put off if you have a different pronunciation than my own. I say Hashem, I say the Lord, I say Adonai, I say Yahweh. That's the way I pronounce it. Um, but in, uh, germane to our study right away is that this is who shows up and appears and the um, the verb uh, appeared over here in the English is this um, Hebrew word right here, Bayera. Um, and he appeared, if we were to hyper-literally translate it, and he appeared, Elone, unto, um, uh, or I'm sorry, and appeared to him, um, Elive Adonai. And so the rabbis are kind of disturbed a little bit that Abraham... Uh, shows up first in the in the uh, the wording here the uh, the vayera is the verb and appeared alive unto him who's the him Abraham and then Adonai shows up afterwards but that's just what Moses wrote because that's what the Holy Spirit told him to write but as we read down through the chapter and talks about Moses I'm sorry it talks about Abraham lifting up his eyes and looked then um, we have the same verb here where in the English it's looked. Uh, in the here, in the uh, the Hebrew, Vayara is the same Strong's number that we'll look at here in a second. It's the same Strong's number that uh, uh, that we saw earlier. So the first thing we noticed is that it's God, it's Yahweh that shows up uh, at the uh, at the at Abraham's uh, tent entrance. But next thing we notice is that the normative language for beholding and seeing and looking upon the same language that would be used if you were looking at something that was physical like you looked at your hand or you looked at the rock on the ground or you looked at the the sheep sitting across the way or whatever grazing it's the same verb that's used to describe Abraham looking and beholding the three men or seeing God um, or the three men uh, God and the two angels, etc., etc. So the point I'm trying to distinguish is that, contrary to what some of the rabbis postulate, this is not the language that's normally used of dreams or visions. In fact, the word dream or vision doesn't isn't even mentioned here. It's simply on its normative, literal understanding, uh, reads like we would read it as if Abraham saw three human beings that showed up. In other words, Abraham doesn't even seem to be aware that these are special uh, beings right? One of them being God, Yahweh, and the other two being angelic. All three of them are spirit beings, right? At the end of the day, all three of them are spirits, but they're all manifesting themselves in, in, um, in a physical way that Abraham's eyes register on the natural level. He simply sees three human beings, 
And from his perspective, unless someone was to tell him um, uh, otherwise, uh, there's no indication as to that, hey, you're looking at some angelic beings. It isn't until later on down in the chapter that Abraham becomes aware that one of the persons, one of the men that he's chatting with is actually the Almighty because the language that Abraham uses shifts a bit. And plus Moses writes. So that's the the first thing I wanted to show. Um, Abraham simply addresses him in verse 3. Uh, as my Lord, which in the Hebrew, uh, Vayomar, Vayomar Adonai, Adonai, which I'll highlight for you here, right there. The word Adonai in the Hebrew using the letters A-D-O-N-A-I are pronounced the same way in English that we would say Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, but they're not spelled the same way. But What's interesting is that the Masoretes were careful to preserve for us, using the little vowel markings underneath the the consonants, the concept of when a person was addressing either God as my Lord or a human agent. As we're going to see later on, uh, Sarah addresses Abraham as my Lord, and she says Adoni, but the vowel markings tell us that it's Adoni versus Adonai, but the consonants... If you strip away the vowel markings, the consonants are identical. So, again, um, germane to our point is that who is Abraham dialoguing with? Well, from Abraham's perspective, he's dealing with with a person that he addresses in a formal manner. Adonai is a formal manner of address. It is my Lord, literally, the Lord of me in the Greek is what it would show up as. But um, in the Hebrew, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew preserves, at least from the Masoretic tradition, uh, um, uh, uh, Masoretic tradition, it preserves the idea that uh, Adoni and Adonai, one being my Lord in the human sense and one being my Lord in the heavenly sense, um, both of them can be utilized depending on, can be uh, represented, the only difference being the vowel points, which aren't there in the original Masoretic. That's important. Also, I'm of the impression that sometimes the Masoretes actually swapped out what originally Moses wrote was YHVH for what we now see in our Bibles as A-D-O-N-A-I, Adonai, or Adoni. So um, I can't prove it right now. So that's a different study at a different time. But if, in fact, that's the case, then actually it should have said matter YHVH and said um my Yahweh, if now I found favor in your sight, right? In other words, Moses would have addressed him as Yahweh right away. But nevertheless, we have what we have now. Um, and so let's work with this particular text, which is reliable. Um, also, I don't want to um, belabor this particular text too long, but as I scroll on down, we'll notice that Abraham hurries. The verbs are, he's hurry quickly. Um, he's doing things rapidly to help these uh, particular men get fed. Um, he hurries to prepare it, um, and, he, and then he stands by while they eat. Um, and then they begin to dialogue with them. And um, as we keep going down, we see that the language that the prominent one uses, which of course we know is, is uh, Yahweh himself, um, starting in verse 13, Adonai uh, el Avraham, and the Lord said to Abraham, the Lord again is identified in the Hebrew as using the Tetragrammaton letters for his name, the four-letter name for God, YHVH. And then um, God says in verse uh, 14, Hashem says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Notice he, the Lord speaks of himself in third person, which I find always interesting from a theological perspective given my trinitarian perspective on the bible 
that God and Yahweh are one God, is one God, and yet three persons. And so I believe sometimes as a Trinitarian that one member of the Godhead, one uh, person of the Godhead can speak about the another person of the Godhead using the same title that they themselves possess, such as either Elohim or um, Yahweh. So, again, this this could simply be a feature of of um, Asian type languages because this is true of other Asian languages where you speak in third person when you're talking about yourself. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? So it'd be like me saying, "Is anything too, too difficult for Ariel?" Right, using my own name in third person. Um, but uh, another another way to look at it is that it's God the Father speaking to God the Son, or God the Son speaking to God the Father, or speaking about it. You know, as if it was Yeshua speaking, saying. Is anything too, too difficult for my father? You know, that, that type of Trinitarian language. But without getting too technical about that, the point I'm trying to make up is that uh, the Tetragrammaton name, once again, is invoked. And in this sense, uh, because of the nature of the promise where he says, I will return and at this time uh, Sarah will have a son, Abraham perceives then, he must perceive then that this must be God because of the nature of the language of promise that is identical to what he had already dialogued with God about earlier on in Genesis, about God promising to bless him and multiply his seed and things like that. He's getting more detail about this um, uh, promise of multiplicity from the very person who dialogued with him, which of course was God. And so it's within that context that, again, verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Again, Vadonai Amar, the Lord says to Abraham, since Abraham will become a great nation and be blessed, right? This language about blessing him and blessing his children and his family after him, again, using third person sometime, keeping the way of the Lord, right? Not keeping my way, but keeping the way of the Lord uh, so that the Lord may bring about upon Abraham again. Just ask yourself, why does God talk this way? Jesus did the same thing often. He talked about the son of man shall come in great power and glory, but he's the son of man. Why would he say the son of man, right? Well, shouldn't he say, I will come in great power and glory? But he spoke in third person often. Um, God seems to do this quite often as well. But notice because of that language about the promise and uh, God talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and going down and doing all kinds of things that only God himself is able to do, judging them um, and seeing if, they will, if they're righteous. Um, Abraham begins to dialogue with this person and he knows it must be God at this point in time because the nature of his request and his plea is that are you going to wipe away the, the righteous with the wicked are you going to wipe them out too oh lord far be it from you he says in um uh verse 25 far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth abraham at this point in time realizes that he's been dialoguing with god who is the judge of all the earth i mean would abraham say this to a normal human being the judge of all the earth no, I don't think so. So Abraham is making his plea to the individual that he knows must be the Lord at this point in time. And of course, the account continues to use YHVH language, so the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in our, in our English uh, translations. And then, but Abraham, for his part, still uses capital L, lowercase O-R-D in the Hebrew. Uh, we see it again right there, uh, Adonai which would be translated, transliterated as A-D-O-N-A-I uh, by some uh, Bibles, Adonai. In other words, the point I'm trying to bring up is it's different uh, Hebrew letters. All right. By the way, this is all smoothed out in the Greek. It just turns up, it just uh, washes out into um, kudios and things like that. We'll see this in a moment. So 
what we're learning from the first chapter, uh, chapter 8, is that, that Abraham is dialoguing with God slash Yahweh. However, there's no reason to assume that God slash Yahweh is the Father alone or the Father exclusively. According to Dr. Dale Tuggy, a prominent um, theologian, uh, a, a prominent Unitarian, analytic theologian and Unitarian uh, believer that we studied in my um, Exploring the Shema study uh, last season, um, Dr. Tuggy believes that what the Old Test, who the Old Testament calls God and Yahweh is simply who Yeshua calls the Father. They're the same one singular God and they are not, and he, God, is not um, uh, compartmentally divided up into three persons or anything like that. However, my Trinitarian understanding of the word God slash Yahweh or, or um, even Elohim in the, in the Bible is represented by the Hebrew words Elohim and Yahweh is that these can be sometimes understood as category terms that describe the class of being that God is, that he exists as. Um, Yahweh is his name, but Elohim or the English word God are descriptors of the, this being known as God, whose name is Yahweh, but the being, the the being of God, the the existence of God, the nature of God, is shared across the three persons, just as much as the name Yahweh is also shared across the three persons as well. So let me say it a different way: There's one God. There are three persons. The three persons are co-equal, but all three persons are God. Right? Makes sense? From a Trinitarian perspective. Likewise, there's one divine name, Yahweh, but the name Yahweh is um, applied to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in different cases. Now, of course, the name Yeshua is the name that is given to the human being known as Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the name that's given to the um, person of the Trinity that is uh, that bears witness of the Son, the human being Yeshua, and that is uh, proceeds from the Father, uh, known as God. But the Holy Spirit is also God. But He doesn't have a name like Jesus or or Elohim or something like that. Um, he He is called Yahweh. He's called the Lord in certain passages. But we'll get to that in time. Okay, so that's enough of Genesis for now. So the point in bringing up the short answer to um, the uh, uh, biblical Unitarian answer about, um, hey, who who is Abraham dialoguing with? Abraham is seeing God slash Yahweh. However, because God can't be seen by humans, then Jesus plays that role in the ter in terms of visible manifestation. Jesus is, we're going to see this in Colossians, he is the visible representation of the invisible God. He's the visible image, the Greek word is icon. He is the visible image of the invisible God, Paul tells us. And because he is, then that means every time that humans visibly interacted with God slash Yahweh, they were actually interacting with a theophany slash Christophany or manifestation of the pre-incarnate Yeshua in the time period of the Old Testament slash Tanakh. So did I lose anyone in my explanation? I hope that makes more sense. Let's let's see this um, borne out. The Strong's number for C in the Old Testament is the normative word ra'ah, which translates into the English as C. And if we were to work our way down through this particular lexiconic tool that I'm borrowing, the BDB, and then this is just the standard 
Hebrew word to describe a human being seeing something tangible with his eyes. In other words, it can be used to describe seeing in a vision or seeing with perception like you understand, but primary to our our, um, explanation here is that most often it is the normative word for seeing something visible. So it's consistent with the theophany slash Christophany slash manifestation concept of seeing the otherwise invisible, unseeable God. The question we have to ask is, what, who or what were they seeing and why weren't they destroyed and, and consumed in the seeing? All right, let's turn quickly real uh, to the um, Greek uh, rendering. Let me see if I can blow that up a bit for us. Let's turn quickly to the Greek rendering. This is uh, a representation of the Greek from two different Greek sources, the, the Alexandrinus uh, LXX Septuagint and the Vaticanus LXX uh, uh, translation. And we've got the Hebrew up above, and Yahweh appeared to him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. I like read earlier the clause that's germane to our study is um right. Let me highlight it here for you. There, the first clause, Vayera Eli Vadonai Mamre, which corresponds in the English with, and Yahweh appeared to him in the plains of Mamre. Um, so we're looking at the, the verb Vayera, um, which is, and he saw, uh, and saw uh, a live he, Adonai, Y-H-V-H, Ba'elone Mamre. In the um, Greek renderings that we have here, uh, this corresponds to that particular phrase. Let me see if I can blow that up absurdly big for you. Um, the Greek says, Hofte da auto hotheos praste duri te mambre. And uh, germane to our study is the very first word, Hofte, um, uh, which Hofte da auto, uh, and he saw hotheos, the God, or the Yahweh, praste across uh, the dre de mambre as he was sitting germane to our study is the very first word um hofe which of which if i were to click on it let me show you which word i'm talking about that one if i were to click on it then the root word is um hara'o and as you can see from this particular lexiconic tool the um as it's parsed out we have a variety of meanings but they're all basically related to seeing either physically or perceiving with your mind or understanding or even seeing a vision right to see with the eyes to watch to behold to catch sight of to notice and that's the primary uh, uh, usage to see in a vision to observe to look at to consider like i.e to look mentally arrive at a conclusion by observation to experience to witness to notice to recognize to understand to realize comprehend to see to it that something is provided to be on guard to watch out so i don't have a problem with Abraham seeing God, and it's not necessarily that he was becoming aware of God so much as that he was simply experiencing the physical manifestation that we all go through when we when our eyes land on something we actually see. So if I look across the room and I see something, then it's not a vision, it's not a mental perception, it's a physical occurrence. It's a it's a it's simply that my eyes are landing on something, and because of physics. The thing is solid. Uh, it's there. I can see it. It's not invisible. Um, I see it with my eyes. So that's all we're really dealing with. Now, from that perspective, we can begin to look at other passages where Moses sees God 
or I'm sorry, where other biblical um, authors or biblical uh, uh, characters see God, like the one we're looking at Moses looking at the burning bush. Well, we'll look at more in detail later on. I'm sure that Biblical Unitarian is going to bring this out, but for now, let's look at it. Um, Moses sees God in the burning bush, and what's helpful for us is to notice that Moses is afraid to look at God. It's the same Hebrew verbs, ra'ah, and, or and things like that. Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father, and the, the priest of Midian, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to the Horeb at the Mount of God, the angel of the Lord this time, not um, not necessarily uh, God as a hu human being, like in Abraham's case, Genesis 18, but it's the same discussion. We're talking about a theophany slash Christophany slash manifestation. It's just a simple, I'm sorry, it's a, a different um, description by Moses. It's the angel of the Lord. But notice it's the same verb. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, Vayera Malach Adonai, alive. Vayera, which I'll highlight for you in the Hebrew, Vayera is the same uh, Hebrew verb that we that is just that Moses used to describe Abraham in the Genesis 18 narrative. Vayera, um, alive, Adonai, uh, and and he looked up and saw God. Well, in this case, it's and he looked up and saw the angel of the Lord, or the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the blazing fire. And uh, again, it talks about Abraham. I'm sorry, it talked about Moses looking and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. And then it's the same verb there. Uh, and uh, looking vayara right uh, there, he looks at the bush right with his eyes. The same verb used there. And then Moses um, has this interesting um, uh, uh, self-realization uh, um, and, and thought to himself, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why this bush is not burned up. Um, you know, Moses speaks to himself. And uh, if I'm correct, let me find uh, which word I'm looking for. Yeah, um, it's the same uh, Hebrew word again. I must see why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord, verse 4, saw, same same Hebrew verb, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush. So um, the, the, trend, the, the seamless overlap between the angel of the Lord and God himself, YHVH, is uh, demonstrated for us in this particular passage. But the reason I'm bringing this up in for our discussion on Genesis 18 with Abraham and God is that similar to that uh, reference, we simply have a human being looking at a manifestation, and it's not necessarily a description of the human being knowing or coming to realize some truth about God. It's a simple description of a narrative where person A sees object B. That's all it is. And this is in uh, in response to um, biblical Unitarianism highlighting the fact that the people who saw God were actually knowing God or something like that, right? They don't have to see God and, um, and uh, see Yeshua like we would physically see Jesus. They say, no, that doesn't have to be Jesus. But when we're talking about seeing God, we're actually talking about knowing God through the person of Jesus. It's, it's almost like they overcompensate for the idea of seeing God physically by describing God being um, known instead of being physically seen. But the point I'm trying to highlight without you guys getting lost in my explanation is that the, the biblical description is that 
primarily right now is just a, a description of them seeing, right? Like, like we see things every day with our eyes, if you have seeing eyes, if you're not blind. So that's the whole point of these references. Um, Exodus 24 is another interesting passage that we will get to in time. Moses went up, starting in verse 9, Moses, Exodus 24, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you ready for this? And they saw the God of Israel, Vayiru, the very first word, Vayiru et Elohe Yisrael. And they saw, so if I highlight the, the Greek, the Hebrew verb there, um, and they saw the God of Israel. And so here's a case again. I, I'm quite certain that um, biblical Unitarianisms, when it, come, when it comes time to this passage, I am almost certain, without even looking, I haven't looked yet, but I'm almost certain to bet that they're going to say, this is just like Abraham seeing God. They didn't see a pre-incarnate Jesus. They only saw God, right? Here's the problem, however, and I'll just tell you this in advance again. The New Testament number, the problem is twofold. Number one, the New Testament already tells us that God is invisible and can't be seen. So does the Old Testament, but the New Testament really kind of brings it out. And number two, the New Testament also tells us that God, that Jesus is the visible manifestation, the visible image of the invisible God. And so why would it go to that point of highlighting that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God if all we're really seeing is God the Father and no one else, right? So we have to always allow the New Testament to, um, uh, what's the word, complete our interaction with the Old Testament. You have to also remember, and I, this is a principle that for, for all their effort, biblical Unitarianism doesn't seem to grasp. The New Testament is not competing with the Old Testament. It's not a competition like a game show where you have to choose choose what's behind door number one or door number two. And you can only choose one, as if door number one is what the Old Testament represents, and door number two is what New Testament represents. And biblical Unitarianism comes along and says, we're going to choose door number one, because we think door number two doesn't speak the truth. What we really need to understand is that from a biblical perspective, the New Testament complements the Old Testament, and completes the picture that was uh, begun in the Old Testament so that in this, going back to the game example, door number one and num door number two both represent truth, but, but door number two is the complete revelation of what door number one began. God never designed us to stop at door number one and get stuck in the revelation of the Old Testament. But this is precisely what the biblical Unitarian perspective does over and over again, as if door number two is not an option, or after experiencing door number two, they reject it and go back to door number one. As if God says, let me show you the complete full picture of what you've been looking at all along in the Old Testament. And the biblical Unitarian says, no, I don't like what I'm looking at door number two, God. I don't like what I'm looking at it, the New Testament. I'm going to reject that, that truth what it's stating, and I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and park out there as if that's the complete revelation. Stop doing that, people. Don't do that. It's a bad way to read your Bible. Okay? So, um, let's always use the New Testament to complete our understanding of the Old Testament. And so, I'm going to go return to that hermeneutic principle over and over again um, 
because that's the right, right way to read your Bible. So who did the elder, who did uh, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seven elders, who did they go up and see? Well, yes, they saw God slash Yahweh because it says in the text, right? It actually uses the word Elohim here, a form of the word Elohim, Vayiru et Elohe. But um, we find out later on um, as well that uh, this God is Yahweh. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, right? YHVH is invoked here to, want to help us understand that the same God that we see in the previous two verses, um, right, which is our familiar word Elohim or Elohe, depending on which uh, what the Hebrew says, is the same YHVH. So who is Elohim slash Yahweh? Who is God in these passages? Well, the Bible already tells us in the latter parts of the Bible that it is Yeshua who can be seen and interacted with because God himself is invisible and cannot be seen in his normative state as God and is in the state that is non-incarnate or non-theophany or non-Christophany or non-manifested. So God in all of his fullness cannot be um, seen by humans, and indeed he cannot be interacted with because the humans would be consumed in God's glory. God has to veil himself every single time for now until one day when this mortal body that we live in take, puts on immortality, and then we'll be able to experience God and know him the way he's fully known. So this is another passage again where, yes, Moses and, and his servant and the, and the elders, they saw God, right? They went up to God. They even described God um, you, in, in anthropomorphic terms. Let me back up a bit here. Um, they saw under his feet, right? Does God have feet? Well, in the theophany slash Christophany slash manifestation form, yeah, he does have feet, but um, in his pure form, he doesn't. Um, those of you who are with me in the live class, all of you, in fact, those of you who joined just a little bit later on, stick around to the end of the class so we can have some further discussions about these details as well as um, other details about uh, um, matters that are important to you. So just uh, sit tight with me for the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes and we'll, we'll work our way through this. I'm, I'm trying not to belabor the point. Exodus 33, um, another account. Uh, Moses writes about how he and God used to dialogue with one another, uh, panim el panim, face to face. el Moshe panim el panim. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. ish el reehu, as a man as a man speaks to his friend or to his neighbor. And um, uh, the, ver the 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 Hebrew noun reehu, uh, the the neighbor of him. Um, his neighbor or his friend, we could say there. Uh, God speaks to Moses and he uses familiar language that almost suggests that God regularly made himself manifested to Moses so that Moses could see God in the exchange, like as if when uh, Abraham had dialogue with uh, God there at the tents of, of Mamre. Um, was God showing up as, um, as a man in those cases? Well, maybe. Was he showing up as an angel? Well, certainly he was in some cases, but who's to say that he didn't simply just show up as a man in most of the cases because it talks about speaking face to face. Does God have a face? Yes, anthropomorphically he does, but God is pure spirit. So in that sense, he doesn't have a face. But notice in this account that Moses dialogues with God and says, please, Lord, 
essentially, if I found favor in your site, I'm scrolling down through the details, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, if I found favor in your site, then um, let your presence go with us and show me your glory. Don't go with us if you're not going to, if your presence is gonna, not going to go with us. And as we scroll down to the passage, um, God um, says to Moses, or the Lord, el Moshe, right? The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to do this thing for you that you're asking about. You have found favor in my sight, and I have known you, and so um, I'm going to make my goodness or my glory pass before you and and proclaim the name, and um, you're going to interact with me on a manifest level. But but in verse 20, God says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So in this passage, which is very important, which we will get to in time with biblical Unitarianism, I'm certain they'll hit this passage as well. The Trinitarian argues that what God does is he manifests himself in theophany slash Christophany slash manifestation in the form of a pre-incarnate Yeshua once again, all the while explaining that it's his glory that's inter that's interacting with Moses, and yet the face of God can't be seen in all of his glory, and yet at the same time, it's because God is making himself known. So in this dialogue, we have verbiage that lends to these lends our support to what the Unitarians and the Trinitarians both agree on, and it's that God can't be seen unless God um, bridges the gap, number one. And number two, God makes himself known to people fully in the manifestation known as Yeshua. So because the language of making myself known is actually included in this passage, and since Biblical Unitarian already go in on to explain that when the phrase see and know are utilized, that Yeshua is in the picture, then we can confidently, using Biblical Unitarian's logic, we can confidently say that this must have been a pre-incarnate Yeshua encounter, because they are the ones, Biblical Unitarians, are the ones that say, or John, the verse that we're going to read here in a moment, that no one can see God, but uh, no one can see God uh, except Yeshua who makes God known. It doesn't say the, the one, John doesn't say Yeshua is the one that makes God seen. He poetically, um, 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 uh, what's the word, um, juxtaposes uh, the word see with the word know. We'll get that in a moment. But the point I'm trying to say here is that Moses and God have this dia they have this encounter with one another, and Moses sees something. So that's that's the point of that particular uh, passage. Let's move along pretty quickly. I think I can finish this tonight. Isaiah chapter six is a very important, significant passage for Old Testament and New Testament reasons. Uh, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And in this dialogue in Isaiah chapter six. Um, Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple, and he realizes that he's undone. Woe is me, right? Which is the Hebrew word oi. You ever heard a Hebrew a Jewish person say oi? This is where this comes directly out of Hebrew oi. Vayomater oi, oi li, right? Um, woe is me, oi, one word, li, next word, woe is me, oi li. Um, so Oi, you know, woe is me. Um, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so um, the Hebrew word for see is ra'u, 
which is rooted in the same Hebrew word that we've been looking at already. So it's the normative word for seeing something physical. Uh, Isaiah says he sees the Lord. But germane to our studies, we're going to get to it later on, the book of John chapter 12 has Yeshua clarifying that Isaiah actually saw Jesus, not God the Father separated from Jesus, but rather God the Son in pre-incarnate form. I'm kind of spoiling it for you in advance, so it can kind of move along quickly. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel in a vision sees um, one on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. This phrase in the Aramaic, uh, the son of man, is um, bar, uh, bar, enosh, bar Enosh, uh, which corresponds to the Hebrew Ben Adam, which simply means human being. So, um, one like a human being was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. But interestingly, in this particular vision, um, earlier, um, Daniel says in verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse um, 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And notice what Daniel says in this vision. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Why is Daniel describing the Ancient of Days, which clearly in context here is God the Father, using anthropomorphic terminology like hair and sitting on a throne and things like that. He's describing something as if he's seeing a, a human-like figure, and yet later on in the vision, he describes a human being approaching the Ancient of Days. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, approaching the Ancient of Days. What are we to make of this vision slash dream? Daniel sees both a theophany of God the Father in his vision slash dream, and at the same time, he sees a... a vision of the it must be a pre-incarnate Yeshua, although it applies to the human being of Yeshua, but before Yeshua hit the scene. So in one sense, it's pre-incarnate but because Yeshua wasn't born yet. But in another sense, it's a vision of something that's taking it's going to take place in the future. <clears throat> so it is actually Jesus that he's seeing just in the past, right? He's seeing Jesus before he was born. So is that pre-incarnate Yeshua? Yes and no. But interesting for our discussion here is that uh, unlike the biblical Unitarian model who says that um, uh, people are just seeing God minus Yeshua, in this uh, vision slash dream, um, Daniel is seeing both God the Father and God the Son uh, at the same time. And they both have human-like uh, details, right? Uh, his hair for God and the human being of Yeshua. We'll deal with that more in time. I just want to make you, make you aware of it <clears throat> up front that um, these types of uh, uh uh, interactions with God, who is otherwise invisible, show up in many different places. And when we use the New Testament to fill in the gaps for what we would have questions about, it all goes comes back to, in this case with Daniel, is Daniel seeing a pre-incarnate Yeshua as the Ancient of Days, and then the Son of Man as Jesus as well? Is he seeing two versions of Yeshua? Well, no. That would be kind of odd. Um, unless you're a oneness Pentecostal, then I suppose it wouldn't be strange, because the one God is Jesus. But from our perspective as a Trinitarian, we're simply seeing a theophany where God the Father is manifesting himself in a vision slash dream. And at the same time, we're seeing a Christophany where um, Jesus, the pre-incarnate uh, Son of God, is being seen before he appears on planet Earth. Let's jump quickly through the New Testament passages and draw our conclusion. John 1.1, 1, 1, no one has seen, I'm sorry, John 1.18, 1, 
This is the verse that also drives uh, the biblical Unitarian's explanation. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, um, or he has made him known. Um, I want you to know, without getting too technical, because we will get to this later in time, so I don't have to do it very technical right now, but I want you to know that this particular verse that biblical Unitarianism says that uh, the people who were seeing God in the Old Testament were seeing God, but they were knowing God through Jesus, but they're actually physically seeing God, but they weren't really knowing God because it's only through Yeshua that one can know God. I agree with the um, second part, but disagree uh, completely with the first part. Yes, they were seeing God, but it was God the Son, but it is true that one can only fully know God uh, through the Son himself. But this particular verse is important for us. We won't get into it tonight. We won't even get into it next week or in the weeks to come. It'll take a little bit of time for us to reach this verse because um, Biblical Unitarian is sure, sure to bring this up in their list. But John 1.18 is important for us because in your KJV rendering of the Bible, it says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. But in your... Um, other translations, your non-KJVs, so in other words, in your NASB and things like that, it's rendered noticing God at any time, the only begotten God. So let me just show this to you real quick. Uh, NIV, no one, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son. New Living Translation, no one has ever seen God but the, but the unique One. English, ESV, no one has ever seen God, the one, the only God who's at the Father's side. Uh, Berean Standard, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God. Berean Literal Bible, same, basically. KJV, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son. New King Jean, New KJV, same. NASB, no one has seen God at any time, God the only Son who is in the arms of the Father. NASB 95, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. So, here's the point I'm trying to make you aware of. Depending on which translation you have, the second clause, the only begotten God, is either translated the only begotten God or is translated the only begotten Son. And what we will get to in time, I'm just making you aware of it now, is that there are differences in the actual Greek manuscripts themselves, right? Monogenes theos haon, or Monogenes theos haon, or as we scroll down uh, to the uh, majority translations, Monogenes huios haon or homonogenes huios haon, the only begotten son, ha, the monogenes only begotten huios, son. So we're seeing these differences. Let me use these two as our highlight, as our as our representative. Um, we have this one, monogenes theos haon, which is translated from the Greek as the only begotten God, the one. And then we have down below in the Byzantine majority, which is like a, a KJV type rendering, homonogenes huios. Oops, I didn't highlight all of it. Let me get all of it there for you there oops let me scroll up otherwise i'm gonna there we go run into some problems there we go homonogenes huios haon uh the only begotten son the one and i'm cutting i'm breaking off the sentence in mid-statement but um or the god um so the point i'm trying to make you aware of is that there are different manuscripts that represent either saying the only begotten God or the only begotten Son. We'll get to that explanation in time, and we'll have to see how biblical Unitarianism deals with those um, differences. We'll likewise go through that Greek. I don't. I'm, I don't have to go through this tonight, but um, no one has seen God, the only begotten God. We can see it right here again. Monogenes Theos. This is the um, like NIV, uh, ESV, um, 
or I'm sorry, this is the uh, uh, ESV and NASB types of Bibles, monogenes theos, the only begotten God. Theos is the Greek rendering of the either Elohim from the Hebrew or of the yod heh vav yhvh Yahweh from the Hebrew. But in the Greek, it just gets swapped out. It's just the theos most often, both times. The Strong's word in the Greek that's used to, for the word to see, horao, is the same one that shows up in the Old Testament and the New Testament renderings when we're talking about Greek. And I brought this uh, a New Testament tool, uh, concordance tool, to show you that horao is the same verb. Strong's number um, 3708 uh, is the same in both the Septuagint for the standard word for see, to perceive, to attend to, that we saw over here in the uh, lexiconic tool of the uh, LXX that we we're looking at earlier. But it's, 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 it's the same uh, Greek word, so I don't want you to be alarmed. John 6, 43, in closing, we're wrapping it up now tonight. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he talks about... Um, people coming to the Father, and then he, he cryptically adds in verse 46 of John 6, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who was sent from God. He has seen the Father. Now stop. According to biblical Unitarianism, lots of people saw the Father. And here's where biblical Unitarianism isn't, isn't getting the point. According to their entire theology, it's not the Son who is God that people saw in the Old Testament, like the Trinitarians teach, it's the Father who is God that people were seeing. They weren't seeing the Son. They were seeing God the Father. That's all they saw. That's who they saw. But Jesus says not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. This would fit the biblical Unitarian theology if Jesus said not that anyone has seen God except the one who is from God. He has seen God. But that's not what Jesus says. He uses the Greek word patera or pater, right? Which is... Um, the Greek word where we get our English word father, patera or pater. Not that anyone has seen the father. So, hello, biblical Unitarianism. How are you going to explain this? Now, I know they're going to give me some explanation, right? I'm just being silly. But in challenge, and I love them. They're my brothers because I'm quite certain that most of them are believers. But here's the point I'm trying to bring up. Listen to what Jesus himself said, who is the one who would be at the authority on the matter. If anyone knows, he should be known. He should be the one. Even as a human being, the biblical Unitarians um, um, give him credit for being the only one who's truly seen God and the only one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, even if he's truly still just a man. He's still nevertheless right now, according to the biblical Unitarianists, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is the only one who has seen the Father, according to this verse. Everyone else, who do they see then? Well, they must see someone else. They must see the Son. Jesus says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, right? Exclusive Jesus. He has seen the Father. Again, notice the words carefully. If the biblical Unitarian's explanation of Genesis 18, where Abraham sees God the Father, I'm filling in the word, the word Father there, because it doesn't show up in the Hebrew of Genesis 18. But that's what the biblical Unitarian wants, wants us to believe, because they're saying that Abraham is not seeing God the Son or a pre-incarnate Jesus or any such figure. They're saying that it's God exclusively, and by that they mean God the Father. Because remember in their theology, there's God the Father, who's only God, and then there's Jesus, the human being, who's the Son, and then there's the Holy Spirit, who's either another name for God or the um, gift from God, something like that. So John 6, 46 
must be a point of contention for biblical Unitarianism, but we'll talk about it in time. I just wanted to kind of highlight that verse. And then here's the John 12 uh, passage where Jesus explains, and I'll just jump down starting in verse 38, where he talks about Isaiah and... Um, he talks about the, the people in Isaiah's day not understanding what they were seeing. And then in verse 41, Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus drops the bombshell. He says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who's the him? If you go back up and read in the context, it's talking about himself, about um, Jesus, right? The one that they couldn't see or understand, that they couldn't um, perceive uh, because God blinded their eyes, they couldn't un they couldn't believe this one. Uh, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right, uh, the Isaiah fifty three passage that Yeshua references in verse thirty eight is clearly referencing this servant of the Lord, this Eved Adonai, that Isaiah is prophesying about. That Yeshua is trying to explain to them that he is the very servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, this person that God is going to bring to Israel to reveal um, himself to him through him, and the one who's going to take away their sins and be their their um, substitutionary atonement, etc., etc. But Israel didn't believe. They were in disbelief. And for this reason, they could not believe. Again, Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and, and God heals them. The blindness is towards the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord person that's in the Old Testament passage books of Isaiah. And it's that person in Isaiah that John says, that Yeshua records, that John records that Yeshua says in John 12, 41, these things Isaiah said because he, Isaiah, saw his, Yeshua's glory. But wait a minute, people. Isaiah 6 says that he saw the Lord's glory. And if we have time, and we will get to it in time, but not tonight, the Septuagint is even more emphatic because it talks about the glory uh, and things like that. It uses the same Greek words. I mean, it's just a great verse. It's almost a slam dunk passage when it comes to um, Trinitarian theology. I say almost because skeptics always have a way of kind of wiggling their way out of explanations that should be obvious. And so in closing, John 14 has Yeshua talking about, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This exclusive statement about coming to the Father. And if you'd known me, you would have known the Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Notice the language of knowing and seeing. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. And Yeshua responds by saying, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now we know from context that he's talking about not necessarily seeing Jesus and seeing the Father, but knowing Jesus, right? Because he talks about if you've, if you'd, um, uh, earlier, he talks about, um, Jesus says, if you had known me, you have known my Father also. So I give biblical Unitarianism credit for highlighting this fact that knowing Yeshua is knowing the Father. And sometimes the language of seeing is interchangeable with the word knowing in the sense that um, we must see not necessarily with our eyes in order to know God, but we must see with our heart by faith. And this goes back to the John... Um, uh, let me find it. John, um, apologize. The John 1, uh, 18. No one has, no one has seen God any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or exegeted him is what the Greek word literally says. 
But um, some versions say he has made him known, which is what biblical Unitarianism is trying to highlight, is that this knowing God and seeing God are kind of uh, played against one another in the different Greek verbs. But in closing, um, as we wind down the study, the Colossians, the Colossians 1 passage is just so emphatic that I have to highlight it over and over again. He, Yeshua, is the image of the invisible God. Has esten akon to utu. He is the uh, akon or icon, from where we get our English word icon. It's this Greek word, right? Let's try that again. It's that Greek word. Uh, he is the image, the icon of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. If Paul's theology is accurate and water watertight or airtight, um, then which we believe it is because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, then what Paul is telling us is that whenever people saw the icon of God in the Old Testament, the image, whatever they perceived with their eyes, it was Yeshua, the icon of the invisible God, the invisible Theos, right, in the Greek, the invisible Elohim, the invisible Yahweh. And so that's a verse that we're just going to have to con uh, um, confirm and affirm over and over again. In closing, though, in 2 Timothy, he reminds us in chapter 6, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment of the Lord. Uh, and then uh, um, dot, 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 as we scroll down, he says in verse 16, speaking of um, God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, right? If we are to take 1 Timothy at the normative understanding, then he's talking about that in the Old Testament, you can't see God and you have never have seen God. Therefore, uh, using this theology, biblical Unitarianism once again falls flat. They fail where they say, who did Abraham see in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham saw God. He didn't see Jesus. He saw God. But Timothy says, God can't, has, no man has seen God or can see God. So if the theology is accurate, and we're not talking about knowing God, because watch this, if according to biblical Unitarianism, the phrase see God is equivalent to knowing God per John 1.18, and that's all that's going on when people see God is it's really a description of them knowing God, or they're actually truly seeing God. So their argument is twofold. You're either truly seeing God, the Father, or you're and you're not really seeing God, you're knowing God um, through Jesus. That's their explanation of the Genesis 18 passage. But according to Timothy, let's let's test their theory. Let's test this thesis. Timothy says no one has ever seen God or can see God. And he means God the Father. He doesn't mean God the Son here. Therefore, um, I believe he says, uh, yeah, um, because he, in the New Testament, by this point in time, the word Lord here is is, is an explanation of, of the Son. So Timothy's talking about God the Father, who no man can see or has seen. Therefore, according to biblical Unitarianism, Abraham saw God, but according to Timothy, that doesn't work. Ding, fail, right? They fell there. Uh, no one can see God or has seen God. And then let's just swap out the word see in the Timothy passage for the word no and see if biblical Unitarian's second argument fits. Who alone possesses immortality, speaking of God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has known or can know. Is that theology accurate? No one knows God or can know God? Well, that doesn't work either. 
right? Obviously, God is is known and can be known. So, uh, biblical Unitarians answer falls flat there as well. So, dang, they get a second fail. All right. And in closing, we have John, First John, um, First John uh, four verse fifteen. Whoever confesses that Jesus is is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. We have come to know. Notice we have the no language here, and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love and abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And then we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Ready for it? Here we go. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We have language talking about knowing and language talking about seeing. So notice the interplay here that John uses in this. Why would we be surprised? Because John's the one who wrote the book of John where it talks about no one has seen God except the only begotten God who has made him known. So John is using the truth of the matter that, and I'm closing with this, the only way to truly know God is to know Yeshua. And so that's the context of his writings. If you want to truly know God, you must get to know Jesus, and then you will not only know God, but you'll be known of God. But um, in but in in uh, addition to that, uh, God, uh, John affirms, is someone who cannot be seen. So again, let's apply biblical Unitarian's logic that Abraham was seeing God the Father in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, John says God. Uh, God has not be seen. Uh, um, John says, um, "How can you say you love your brother who you can see uh, when you don't love God who cannot be seen?" Right. That's the kind of call of the argument here, light from heavy argument. Um, John is saying that God cannot be seen. Right. God has not been seen by the person who says they supposedly uh, love their brother whom they do see. John says, no, uh, you see your brother, but you hate him. So how can you say you just love God that you have not seen? Um, did the uh, person here in John see God but not see Yeshua? No, obviously they don't know because they're in darkness. But watch this. Let's just swap out the word no for the word see here in John and see if that works, if biblical Unitarianism logic works. We're g- they're going to get a fail here again, but just, I'm just telling you in advance. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has known cannot love God whom he has not known. See how weird that is? His brother whom he has known cannot love God love who he has not known. So, in conclusion, biblical Unitarianism fails twice. Abraham saw God slash Yahweh, but it must have been the God who makes himself seen and known through the person of Yeshua because God is the invisible God and the image is Jesus, according to Paul's writing in the book of Colossians. And so we're going to stick with what the New Testament explains to us about the Old Testament passages rather than um, pitching the Old Testament and trying to pit the Old Testament against the New and opting for the old in our in our theology. Biblical Unitarianism, stop doing that, all right? Stop doing that. Just accept what the New Testament says about um, God's triune nature and um, God's um, unexplainable mystery and just accept it by faith. 
And that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And with that, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for uh, so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the students who engage in the study with me. I thank you for your spirit who preserves the word and explains it to us. I thank you for the opportunity to share my, these thoughts with uh, my thoughts with the students around the world via YouTube and iTunes and, and the mechanism of my website and my, my blogs and things like that and my commentaries and my newsletter. Thank you for the challenge of of uh, teaching these uh, topics. I pray that you'll continue to um, give me insight into uh, the biblical text. I don't have all the answers, but I know you do, so I'm going to continue to look to you. Continue to um, uh, just be with us, Lord, with your presence. Uh, Continue to give us a hope beyond hope, helping us to look forward to that blessed hope uh, that awaits for us, the coming of our Lord Yeshua to take us to himself and uh, establish his kingdom here on earth. We'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.